A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. Today, I have with me Mara Smith. Mara is the founder of Inspiro Tequila, so this should be a fun show for us. I, I don't think I've had somebody who is um, founded a spirits company on my show before. Uh, welcome to the show, Mara. Hi, nice to be here. So um, I, it's funny when I when I uh, first saw your profile, thought of another friend of mine who um, who also uh, actually he purchased a tequila company, and I learned very very little bit about the business, but it's a very very interesting business. A lot of marketing. Product, product quality is really, really huge here. But um, you didn't start your life with the intent of owning a, um, a, a liquor brand, as best as I can tell. Your, your, your past takes you through some other corporate paths. And, and I wondered if you'd, you'd share with us your path of, of you know, where, where you got started with things and how did it all lead to this, um, this tequila company that you're running today? Yes. Yes. This is uh, definitely a major pivot in my life. Um, so, um, I guess I had a, I had a dream as a, a little girl, probably not the typical uh, six-year-old dream is that I wanted to be a Supreme court justice. So, um, I had on my radar that I was going to go to law school, become a lawyer from a very young age. I was really kind of myopically focused on that. So, um, like, you know, the, I wasn't ever thinking about becoming like an entrepreneur, um, I guess I, I must have really wanted a, a secure job since I, I wanted something that would be a position you hold for life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really focused. I knew I wanted to go to law school. Um, so after undergrad, and I have a business degree uh, from undergrad and, and then got my CPA, um, I went uh, to Northwestern Law School and came out of there and went to work at one of the largest law firms in Chicago. Um, you know, again, uh, really focused on and driven and well, also knew I needed to pay off my law school loans. So, um, that was kind of the, the safest path for me then. So again, really not, um, not a big risk taker, um, going a very kind of straight, um, and linear path. So this really is a major deviation for me. Um, so I went to practice law at a large law firm and there I got a ton of experience really quickly. You get thrown in the fire very fast and I learned a lot. But once I knew I wanted to start a family, um, I kind of looked at what my options were. And at that time, I really had no female role models. There were no women partners in my entire department. I didn't have anyone to look to to see how you could possibly balance um, a family and a life at a large law firm. So. At that point, I decided to make a change and go um, and work on the corporate side. So I went to McDonald's Corporation to work in their corporate strategy and the business development group. Mm-hmm. And that actually is where uh, they sparked my entrepreneurial spirit there because um, I was part of a project we were doing where we were studying uh consumer trends and customer insights and, and I did and come up with like different concepts and ideas. And I just thought the whole ideation process was really fascinating. So at that time um, I got the bug and started thinking, I'm going to start my own company. Um, and was thinking about ideas. Actually, I'd started researching into opening a, um, an ice cream franchise uh, being in Chicago, probably not the best locale for that. Sure. Um, so I, I decided that wasn't the right kind of company for me to start, but the ideas were like percolating my head. Um, my corporate career though came to a screeching halt when um, I was pregnant with my oldest who are twins and I was put on emergency bed rest. Mm. So um, then I had preemie twins and I thought they needed my attention and they made the decision to stay home. That was actually probably the biggest um that I made and changing my trajectory and, and one that I don't think I ever saw coming. I don't think anyone who knew me ever saw that coming. Yeah, I was just really driven and like, okay, what's the next step? How do I move up the corporate ladder or move up in a law firm? And, um, the fact that I made this like huge change and decided to stay home, um, was really a, a big shift for me. Um, 
And then after being home for, for many years and having a subsequently a third child, um, but I was always thinking of ideas. What am I going to do? Um, what am I going to do when I grow up? I knew I want to start my own company. I feel like I've been told that maybe I don't work so well with authority. So I thought it was better for me to start something on my own. Um, and as I was thinking of ideas and always really consumer product oriented ideas, um, I kept coming back to tequila. So I've been a tequila drinker for years when I was looking for kind of a clean spirit option that fit into my more active lifestyle. Um, I started trying really high quality tequilas and, um, I just started gravitating towards those wine. I like it, but with all the sugar, I didn't feel good the next day. Uh, vodka has some strange phenomena wake me up in the middle of the night. So I started discovering really great quality tequilas and, um, converting a lot of girlfriends to becoming tequila drinkers. And then I was just hearing all these women tell me that they drink tequila. That's their spirit of choice also. And I just kept thinking, well, if all these women drink tequila, how come brands aren't really focused on this consumer? There's this thoughtful female consumer who drinks tequila and half of tequila drinkers are actually male after I did some research. So that just led me down the path of doing a ton of research on the industry and really um, trying to understand a better production process, the players in the industry, um, and also how I could do things a little bit differently. So from bringing a, you know, female perspective to a very male dominated industry to focusing on this uh, female consumer and making something very customer centric, everything from the, the look of the bottle to the taste profiles, to the aroma profiles. And I had also discovered in, in my research that a lot of tequila brands use additives, things like coloring, flavoring, and yeah. glycerin yeah. that I did not know about before. And I thought here I'm drinking tequila because I want this like clean plant-based spirit, no sugar, no carbs, but I definitely don't want additives in my tequila. So that's really when I really dove in because I said, okay, are there any brands that really appeal to me as the consumer that are additive free? And at that point when I did not find one, I kind of set out and said, well, I think, I think we can create one. So, Okay, well, so I don't know a lot about um, the distillation process for tequila and all that stuff, but by having it clean, as you describe it, does that affect the shelf life? Does it affect the quality? Does it affect the taste in any way? I mean, so so what have you discovered in, in you know in your journey here? Yes, so it doesn't affect um, the shelf life, and and as far as taste profiles, so this is kind of how I formulated it. Well, one, we brought on um, a legendary master distiller in Mexico, Ana Maria Romero Mania. So I really wanted her to create the taste profiles and bring my vision to life. Um, And also it's part of us having a, you know, really adding a female perspective by having women involved in every part of our process from creating the product to getting on the shelves. But we had done research and figured out the types of tequilas that women were telling us they like and which brands they like and figuring out kind of the taste profiles and tasting notes they like. We found is that generally they're the ones that have some sweeter notes, vanilla, caramels, um, but often they create those by adding things to them and that's how they get the really vanilla, rich vanilla scents or caramels. So I said, can we create those sweeter notes. It's not, it's still going to taste and smell like tequila, but can we create those notes? Can we make a sippable tequila that's very easy to drink, but without using additives? And so it is based on the process. It is based on her meticulous process from the agave we select, how it's cooked, our fermentation process. And for a Blanco tequila, we do something unusual in that we actually rest it in barrels for a short period of time. So that brought out the sweeter tasting Mm -hmm. notes and took a lot of the bite off the tequila. Um, But we were able to do it without the use of additives, but by using some barrels to rest it for a short period of time. So these additives um, that you've, you've experienced the vanilla and caramel, they're literally, I mean, I'm oversimplifying, but adding vanilla and caramel into the process or some chemical thereof that may not even be a good chemical to consume. Right. Sugars. I mean, I'm sure they're, you know, consumable. They're still a, yeah, approved, of but course. there are the, um, 
governing body in Mexico, they allow a certain amount to be put in without disclosing it on a label. Mm -hmm. So for an aged project that's in, that's in barrel aged, you can add it to 1%. And there are even loopholes for a Blanco and unaged um, expression to have additives used. Listen, it helps with consistency. You know, we're a small producer and we're able to, you know, produce batch by batch and handcraft it. Um, it's often used because if you want to be able to churn it out more quickly and, you know, just be able to do it, you know, over and over with consistency, if you add coloring, you know, that the color is going to be the same every single time. If you add flavoring, you know, mm -hmm. that you can really, you know, um, maintain that consistency. So it's a lot, it's just a lot more complicated, um, to do it without the use of any additives. So, so is the operation itself, the, the distilling operation, is it also in Mexico? It is. So because we're a 100% agave tequila, it has to be bottled and manufactured in certain regions of Mexico. It's similar to like champagne has to be right. um, only bottled in, you know, the region of champagne. It's the same with tequila. So um, a mixto or something that's only 51% agave plant and 49% can be other sugars or grains. Uh, those are kind of the things that people have PTSD from when uh -huh. they drink tequila and they're younger. Yeah. I think those I've had a few of those to. days. <laughs> for sure. But for, to be a hundred percent agave tequila, it has to be in certain um, locations within Mexico. And that's where it has to be manufactured and bottled and then brought in already bottled. Okay, so um, I'm finding this really interesting, and, and but the, the show shouldn't be necessarily about the tequila itself, right? It's about getting there. Uh, you know, okay, so you had this, you had this great idea. I mean, you you found you found a niche, and, and I mean, some of the best um, entrepreneurial ventures come from you know that. What's what's the need? What's the, the the you know, and how do we fill it? It seems to me like it's a big leap, though, going from being, well, it, it, you know, a corporate strategist at McDonald's, and, and that's no small undertaking in and of itself, um, but to, you know, to, to dive into starting something that has to have an, an out-of-country manufacturing component where you're not actually purchasing a company, but you're starting it up. What was that journey like? Yes. So I'd say... It is a, a big, you know, kind of leap um, from my former life to being an owner of a tequila company. But I think one thing that has really been helpful for me is my legal background and just um, the kind of research I was used to doing. Because mm -hmm. I really think in any industry, if you want to make any kind of career pivot or enter in, in, into, into any new industry, I feel like the research piece of it and the due diligence is key. Yeah. So... That um, didn't phase me as much as far as like how much I had to, you know, do and look into um, the production, you know, and how how different distilleries produce their tequila. Um, I did have to find consultants down in Mexico to help me and help me source a distillery because I started this all right before the entire world shut down for COVID. Sure. So I couldn't get to Mexico. So I did find people who could take me on like virtual tours and things like that. Um, but it a really good sense based on kind of the, you know, surveys and um, focus groups that we did. I had a good sense of like what I really was looking for as far as the outcome yeah. and what I wanted it to be like in the outcome. So then I just had to find someone who would be willing to create it how I wanted it. And also I defined really narrowed down the field a lot when I was looking for a distillery that let me bring my own chef into their kitchen. So because I knew I wanted this, my own master distiller, I had to find one that would let me bring my own master distiller in. So that kind of narrowed things down too. But yes, it's very complicated how with long? operations in another country. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how, how we used to do international work and we were fortunate because we had good relationships. We had people that were already established. And again, here you are starting kind of from scratch. Well, so you didn't actually have to build your own distillery. So that's, that's, that's good news. Um, but how long did it take you to find one that, uh, that would allow you to bring your own, your own person in and kind of basically create your recipe there? Yes. You know what? Actually, the funny thing is I found them. They're the first one I spoke with, huh. but I didn't select them until I, you know, talked to so many different ones and yeah. like 
turned every stone over. So um, I want to say probably about like seven months um, of research and it actually ends up, someone had introduced me to my distillery initially because it was someone who works, uh, had worked for an agave syrup company and the same distillery, um, makes a lot of the agave syrup. So they had a lot of agave fields and they were mm-hmm. looking to expand into tequila production and expand their, that part of their capabilities. Um, so I had actually spoke with them right off the bat before I even had consultants looking for me or anything like that. And of course it's kind of like, that's where I ended up going. Who I ended up going with is the first one I, you know, yeah. talked to initially. Yeah. Okay. So um, I want to keep this conversation going. I've got a lot of, a lot of questions in my mind because, because we're delving into how an entrepreneur starts an international business. It really is an international business. So we got to take a quick break, but we'll be back in uh, just a couple of minutes. So everybody stay tuned. We'll be back with Mara in just a couple of minutes. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at The Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. See you there. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back with Mara Smith. So Mara, before the break, we were starting to go down this whole building an international business. One of the first questions that comes to my mind is, is since it's not your plant, since it's not, you know, your the sugar producer, the, the, the farm, all that kind of stuff, there's, there's a lot of people involved in this. And how do you protect your intellectual property? I mean, that's, that's been one of the things that, that, I mean, even we struggled with a little bit when we were dealing, especially with Asia, you know, it, it was really hard to protect your intellectual property. It's amazing how many copycats, you know, might pop up pretty quickly. Is that, was it hard, you know, trying to do that in Mexico? What are you doing to protect yourself? So I think there's a few things. I think, um, as far as like things like trademarks for branding and, and naming and all of that, I mean, that I've all thought, you know, because my past, because my background in, in the law, I mean, that was like the first thing I did is everything's been trademarked from our taglines to name logos, everything like that. Um, but I think the more difficult part is, you know, for example, our recipe. So we have our own specific recipe because we don't use a bulk tequila and just like tweak it. Um, and we have a, you know, a recipe book that someone follows. Now, what I would say is this, can I totally protect it, um, from someone else and, you know, my distillery using it for someone's probably not, um, it's really hard. And as you, as you know, enforcing that overseas, um, would be very difficult or even getting right protection overseas. But I think of it as like, it's kind of everything put together. So can someone replicate everything, right? They can't be, you know, they're not going to have my recipe with my master distiller, exactly how it is with the same distillery. They're not going to have the same branding. And and most importantly, they're not going to have the same story behind it. Right. Because I think a, a big piece of this is, you know, our story and that we're trying to bring a female perspective and it's hard to have all those pieces together. 
So yes, is it possible that someone can take one of those pieces? Um, but there are a lot, a lot of tequila brands out there. So I think there's probably gonna be someone else they're going to want <laughs> to copy right. first before well, Inspiro tequila. And, and the truth is, is most entrepreneurial companies have a reason for why they believe their recipe, their concept, their, their item, whatever it is, is the best, right? I mean, that, that's why you do it. Most people don't want to even be seen as a knockoff or a change, but, but I think you're, you're hitting on something that's incredibly important. You know, and I, I think about this with my clients all the time, and sometimes people get so wrapped up in trying to protect their intellectual property every which way, and they, they, miss, the, they miss the bigger picture. And I, I think that's part of what you're describing, is it's one thing to be able to copy the product. It's another thing to be able to execute on every other aspect of the brand, right? Because the brand is more than the product itself. It's, it's about the relationship with your customers. It's about their belief system. It's about how they, how they think about you, how they feel about you. And the story is a huge part of that. Yes. And I think it's, it's also the community that we're building. Mm -hmm. So you can maybe exactly, you can replicate the product. Someone can probably knock off my battle, even though it's being patented, you know, because who knows what you can do in another country um, because it is our own custom design. But um, I agree. It's, it's having the story, the authenticity behind it and really this community that we're building of, you know, I'm very engaged in um, networks of female founders and leaders um, and, and how we give back to other female founders, how I'm connected to them, how we collaborate with other women owned businesses. So I feel like that is something that, you know, you just, if you have the same product and put it in a bottle, you're not going to have that piece of it. Right. Right. And, you know, I, I want to dive down this community path because it's, a, it's another thing that, that I don't think a lot of people think of yet. Um, but the power of building a community behind what you do, and sometimes even if it's bigger, you know, um, and, and being the recognizable part of it or the, the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the tie that brings it all together, that community is, is really, really strong. And so outside of, let's say, just, you know, your own personal network and the kind of things you're doing and telling the story, are, are you leveraging other things to, to build a community? Are you going to build a community website where people talk about tequila and other things? I mean, what are, and, and if I'm getting too far down some of your, your plans that may or may not be released, we don't have to talk about it, but I'd love to know what kind of things you're doing to, to strengthen and build the community. Yes. And I, I appreciate that. And I am, it is well beyond kind of my network. So, you know, I made a transition after being a stay at home mom for years. So, I mean, I have great supportive friends, but I did not have a network of people with, you know, business contacts. Mm -hmm. So it was really starting from scratch. I feel like it's a little bit like if you move out of town to a new city and you don't have family there and you really have to like create your own family, um, you know, with friends, I feel like that's what I do with this community and a network. So I just dove in, I joined different women's groups. Um, I'm very involved in a number of different women's networks. I think there's the women network piece. I'm involved in uh, CPG networks, other consumer products. And I think it's something, those are kind of groups that traditionally you don't see spirits companies involved in. Right. So they kind of stay in the spirits lane. So I'm involved in part of women in the vine and spirits and discus and, and, um, and traditionally kind of industry, you know, spirit industry groups. But beyond that, I'm also, I think there are a lot of learnings to be had from, um, just consumer product groups. Um, that do things really well in like the health and wellness space. So communities like for me, naturally Chicago. Um, so I kind of look beyond spirits world there and have built a community um, and relationships outside of spirits there. And then these women's organizations where from holding events, going and speaking, I think anytime someone can hear the story and it resonates with them and I can maybe tell other women in the room that it's not too late it's actually to make a career pivot or enter into a new industry. Um, so I just do a lot of those speaking engagements. If it's women in law or um, I've spoken to women in middle market deal makers, women, you know, uh, there are just so many different groups to be able to kind of spread that message to. And that's kind of what I think. I think it's building it 
through, uh, if it's through LinkedIn and for me really trying just to learn from other founders and also yeah. to give back. So when people reach out to me, I respond. If they send me a LinkedIn message, if they send me a DM on Instagram, I think kind of my, you know, I think what I would give, tell someone and, and instruct them is that really though, when you're reaching out to someone, you know, come with some valuable information. Don't reach out and say, can I pick your brain? I, before I talk to someone, I've done a lot of, you know, research on their background. I'll have potentially read a book that they wrote or listened to a podcast they were at, you know, on. So I think if you come with really kind of like specific asks and really knowing who you're talking to, mm-hmm. um, that's the best way to approach it and to kind of build that network of people. So as I told you before, you know, I, I dove in, I did a ton of research. I was really good at like finding out different aspects of running a business and production and history of tequila making. But no matter how much due diligence you do, you still need um, a network of people behind you. Right. So that was really the next step was like building that. I could not do it alone. So um, in building those networks and going out discovering, and you kind of touched on this earlier, but but I'd love to know if, if there's maybe some deeper statistics, but um, if, if you had to make a guess, um, how many spirit companies, let's, let's take wineries out of the mix. If, if, if you know, I don't know how much, but you know, cause that's a little bit, that's a kind of a different animal. There's so many wineries around the world, but, but when you think about distilled and, and spirits, I mean, how many of them are women owned? Is it, it, it's, I, it seems like it would be a small percentage of them. It's, it's going to be a small percentage. So what's funny is, um, I actually reached out and connected with like, so many, I mean, I want to say almost all of the, you know, owners that I could find, yeah. I reached out to, and I feel like there's like a community among, among us where we want to help each other. Um, and, and we do, and we share learnings and provide guidance. Um, I think it's growing. I think more and more women are getting into it, but I do think uh, it's still a very small number and it's a small number as far as like actual woman owned or, you know, we're WeBank certified. So women owned certified by WeBank, you're going to find, very, very few are, you know, can meet that standard of, of being woman owned. Did you, um, did you experience in the building of this, any, like, um, any barriers with, I mean, just, you know, because you were a woman, I mean, were, it was, did anything work against you trying to do this in the spirit industry or is it just that women just aren't getting into it at this stage? You know, I think, um, because traditionally, um, women have just not been in this industry. I think, you know, for a number of reasons, I think it's probably harder to get funding just like in many industries. Yeah. Um, I think the people that control, you know, most of the kind of like operations behind this, if you need a distributor or you're getting into retail, things like that, they're still, you know, very focused, um, very kind of male driven and, and focused, um, and male consumers as well. Um, but I actually think for me, um, the biggest hurdle was not being a woman in the industry. Um, I think the biggest hurdle for me was kind of gaining, um, credibility and earning respect by being an outsider. So what I discovered is there are so many people, once you enter the spirits world, that have been in this industry for a very long time and worked their way up the industry in different like roles within the industry. So that was actually my um, kind of more eye-opening eye uh, discovery was that, wow, it seems so insular and everyone seems to know each other and coming in as an outsider and proving yourself is really difficult. And that is also why I think I felt I needed to go like above and beyond on the amount of research from, I mean, I got certified by the CRT, the governing body in Mexico on the production and history of tequila and took a class to get certified. Like all of the extra, you know, research that I did and reading books and listening to podcasts and reaching out to industry experts. I thought I I needed to make sure that um, I had a really solid like foundation because so many people have been in this for a really long time. So when it came to funding, I mean, I don't want to say obviously you had to find funding, but I mean, this, this, I, I can't imagine that it was a, you know, that it was a bootstrap and cheap endeavor to get something like this started because, because you're, you're getting out there on a fairly good size scale. 
Um, what was the process for you? How did you find, how did you find your funders and um, how did you kind of, how did you sell them on the idea? So I am actually bootstrapped. You are bootstrapped. So we are bootstrapped and, um, and there are a number of reasons for doing that at this, at this point. And why I did that? I'd like to say um, also as a, as a more seasoned entrepreneur and starting this entrepreneurial journey later in life, you know, I have the benefit of, my husband and I working for a very long time before mm-hmm. I started out on this endeavor. It's not like I kind of came up with this um, in my dorm room. And so I think there's a benefit of going in a little later in life. Also when I was finally able to take a little bit more risk. Um, but for now we're bootstrapped and there's a number of reasons. Um, the first and foremost being that I'm a solo entrepreneur and the amount of time that is required to pound the pavement and seek funding Um I really have no more bandwidth. And although I'll be doing that at some point right now, when I'm doing everything from barcodes to, um, you know, reviewing all social media to trying to get, you know, handle logistics and, um, and going out and selling. Um, it's just not, I just don't have any more time for that. I also really believe in having some proof of concept first. Yeah. So showing some traction, before going, going that route. And, and I think there's a lot of different kind of funding alternatives as well. Also before taking on money and giving away equity. I mean, here in Chicago, they just opened the first women's bank and they provide, you know, SBA loans for female founders. I mean, what a great resource for women who have a hard time finding funding. There's crowdfunding platforms. There are just a lot of different ways to look at it. I think now, um, so I don't think I kind of make it like the pinnacles, like, oh, I, a lot of people look at it like I had this much money. Like for me, that's not like the ultimate goal is to take on as, to take as much money as I can get. Right, right. No, I, I, I'll tell you what, I, I was actually really happy when you said that because, um, and I'm not putting down, you know, the, I've got a lot of friends who are investors out there and they're angels and, and, and obviously we know the difference to angels and venture and all of that. And, uh, Yet I, I'm a real believer in bootstrap because if you can prove your, you know, that you can get a business going without somebody else's money, it actually, I think makes you more valuable in long, long run. Um, you know, now obviously you got to have the resources to pull it all off and there's probably a certain, certain point of time. Um, we're, we're actually coming up now on the end of our second segment. So in a couple minutes here in a minute or so, we're going to take a little bit of a break, but you know, when we come back, I, I kind of want to talk to you. I'm going to spend some time with you on being a solo entrepreneur and what that is like, because I think that, that, that might be one of the fears that holds a lot, holds a lot of people back from making a leap and getting out of the corporate world. So I want to, um, um, explore your experience with that. So everybody stay tuned. Um, we'll be back in just a couple of minutes with Mara Smith. It's time to transform your business with the help of the execution culture co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at The Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. See you there. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back one last time with Mara Smith. 
So Mara, um, you used the term solo entrepreneur uh, just before we went to break. And in my mind, that that's always somebody who's really working alone. They don't have a partner. They don't have employees. Do you have employees in your organization today? So I have one full-time employee and then I have others that are on a 1099, you know, consulting basis or agencies that we work with that, that feel like they're part of the team, that they're an right. agency model. But you don't have the burden of having all those people on you. And, and, and I, and I asked the question because I've had, I've known several people through the years who the, the stopping point from taking their idea out there was that they didn't, they, they were, they were afraid that they needed employees. They weren't sure how to do it alone. There was, there was all this other kind of stuff in, and you don't need to have, you don't need to start your company with 50 employees. Um, you know, in the beginning, what was, um, what was it that you were doing to get things up and running? And when you, what was the decision point to bring on that employee and those other contractors? Yeah. So I'm going to say a few things about, and I know it is scary. It's scary going at it alone, but I have to say what sounds even scarier to me is I literally had a conversation with another founder that I'm friends with a female founder this morning who is having issues with a co-founder and trying to figure out how to get out of that, um, that agreement and that operating agreement. And that is not the first story I've heard. There have been numerous, I'm sure it's not the first one you've heard. And, um, so as you know, that is, it's much harder to have someone who, who really doesn't have the same vision as you. Um, and then you're not on the same pages and things change and people's roles change and what they want out of the company. So for me, I think there's definitely a benefit of being able to get to see your vision come to life without those outside voices. Same way I feel a little bit about funding as well, being taking on funding when it's appropriate time, because you know, that also can, can change things and, you know, have you deviate a little bit from like what your, you know, direction is. So I'd say that as, as far as being going at it, you know, on my own, um, as so, far as so employees, if I can, I, I want to pause for yes. one minute. Um, it's such an important point. Again, somebody drilled this into my head. And, and, and for me, the false start I had was when I very, very first left the corporate world, when I, there was a gentleman that I was going to partner with, and we actually never legally brought it together, um, which was a good thing, because within a year, I realized he was on a different path. I was on a different path. And several more years before I even brought somebody else into the company. That turned out to be really, really good until he retired. But, but you know, I've always heard give up equity. You don't give up equity until there's like no other option, you know, do, you know, you know, keep the control, keep everything. And I've experienced that. And that's, you, you know, you're kind of sharing the same thing. You got to be really careful. It's, it, it's, it's harder that harder to get out of than a marriage. I mean, you got to be really careful who you, who you get into business with. Definitely. And in this case, you know, I'm talking to someone and you go in and you're 50, 50, you have like, no, you know, you no one has a majority, you can't make decisions. So, um, so for me, I think that's a real benefit, even though it's a very lonely journey yeah. as an entrepreneur, which is why I think when we talk about that network and having all these other female founders that I'm kind of surrounded by and, and getting to bounce ideas off of them and talk to them really helps that piece of it. Um, but then I also do believe that you do not need to go in with a full team. And it's kind of funny. Sometimes people will ask, okay, so, you know, and you know, who like, do I have a CFO and a CMO and all these, you know, different and COO. And I really relied on contractors in 1099. First of all, it allows me to test people out and learn. Mm -hmm. And so the one full-time employee I have who is our national head of sales and marketing, I had her on as a contractor for eight months first. So I knew that we work well together, that she has the same vision for the company that I have, um, you know, that our personalities work, that she believes in the brand. And it took, so it took a long time for me to kind of build that relationship and trust to bring someone on full time. And I just think there's so many learnings from a startup and you're, you know, much more able to pivot and you have a lot more flexibility if you don't have people on and you haven't onboarded a whole team as, as full-time employees, yeah. right? You can try someone out and if they're a 1099 or consultant, you can see, is this working for me? Is this not? Do I have to, you know, pivot here? Because there are a lot of 
learnings. I mean, agencies. I mean, I interviewed probably 20 social media agencies to start off with. And I've changed as my third one. Mm-hmm. And I have that kind of flexibility to see what's working. You know, someone may not get the brand voice. Someone just might not work well with me. Someone might not take the kind of feedback I give well. So I think um, testing the waters a little bit and having that kind of like, you know, just flexibility um, for me has been really essential. And I just think it's a lot harder to get out of something that is a more permanent um, you know, kind of set up, like bring in a full-time employee right. and, and benefits and all of that. Um, then doing things with kind of like small, I use like a lot of freelancers, small agencies, 1099s. And sometimes it's a great fit, but sometimes it's not a great fit. And I, I think for a startup and you're learning so much as you go, you don't really know exactly what you need when you start my needs as far as marketing, you know, in this industry, um, have changed. So figuring out, you know, what it is, what's the most essential, what kind of skills do I really need now? It probably was very different from what I needed, you know, two and a half years ago when I just, you know, set up my LLC. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it, and the other, the other thing is, is, is you're kind of proving in today's world, right? The world has changed for people who, who are entrepreneurial. It's certainly if we're talking a service business, a restaurant, you know, there are certain things that are going to be employee intensive, but there are many, many things that might on the surface seem employee intensive, but they don't have to be. You know, what, what's great is, is, okay, I'm sure the distillery has plenty of employees because they got to make this stuff. Um, but, but as an owner, you can, you can basically license and subcontract almost every aspect of your business if you set it up with, with companies that are good companies. Um, so, you know, you have the one employee. I mean, I don't know that, that you'll really ever need much more if you keep building these things up. Um, where are you at in your production life? So you said you started this just before COVID hit. Um, so it's two, three years. Um, and you know, I don't even, honestly, I don't even know when tequila is ready to drink from, from, from when you start with a raw plant, but, um, what, what's that path like and and how are you handling distribution and do you have distribution nationally? Yes. So I'm first going to touch on your point about bringing people on and looking kind of alternatives. And I'd like everyone to think about that a little bit, like my fractional COO, for example, um, is a woman that I found who's a stay-at-home mom of three small children who had experience working for a champagne startup um, as a controller position and in operations. And when I heard about her, I basically um, kind of, you know, tried to persuade her to re-enter the workforce, um, even though that's not what she was doing right now. And I think looking at alternatives, I just said, I don't really care when you get the work done, right? I don't care if it's during the school hours. I don't care if it's late at night, as long as it's done. And so she's handling operations and logistics, which is, such a huge endeavor in this, but I just like to tell people, you know, who are starting out and starting their own venture, there are different like kind of structures and ways to do it. I mean, she sends emails like in the middle of the night. I, I, that's fine. Um, you know, as long as the things get done. Um, and then I say as far as production. So the first initial, so I started this like February of 2020 by the time I found a distillery and got our first production run up and running we had it into the United States within like 18 months. It was like end of September of 2021. Mm -hmm. We've since done um, two more production runs and, um, and imported them. And actually the third run is going to get battled, hopefully um, beginning of September and brought in. So these runs are selling out. I mean, that's why you're doing more runs, obviously. Well, it depends. The first one was a very small run mm-hmm. and we were doing it. It went really just for our online purposes, our e-commerce. So we have our own e-commerce platform. It's, it's a little tricky in the spirits world because it's not really mine. Right. Let's get run by a third party because of the three tier distribution laws from 1933. Right. So right. there's a white label e-commerce platform that handles that. So that's that whole first run went to our own e-commerce platform. Now, although we buy so many things online, people have not yet really um, totally converted to buying alcohol or spirits online. People still like to go to their local retailer. So we are available um, nationwide, like 45 states through our 
e-commerce platform, which is inspirotequila.com. We are on some other marketplaces as well that sell spirits like Reserve Bar so that you can, we're available we pretty much nationwide bar, there so too. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Um, but then as far as entering into markets, so our first market um, is Illinois because I'm in Chicago and Chicago based. I really wanted to go in my own backyard first. And so we have a, you know, traditional distributor partner in Illinois. Um, in, in this alcohol realm, you need to have a distributor in every single state you enter into. So in Illinois, we have a great distributor partner and we've been rolling out, um, especially in, in retail in Illinois. Um, and I'm a little bit, you know, I guess weary of just trying to like expand too quickly. So we're going to build, I believe in kind of going inch wide, mile deep and really build our presence here. And then we're looking at a few other markets to extend to, but I don't want to spread ourselves too thin by saying we're going to blanket, you know, we're going to be in 20 States next year. And um, it just doesn't seem realistic. You need to have support. You need to build it thoughtfully. So I want to be very strategic and thoughtful in our approach and how we expand. There's some key markets for us that I think will be, would be really good markets and really speak to our consumer and that we could really support and do well in. And those are the ones we'll go in next. But, um, and a little bit about being kind of like lean and mean and really kind of hyper focused, um, as opposed to trying to like, just be everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So as I think about this, branding, you know, is, is so much more. We've, we've talked, we've kind of been all over the board here. But at the end of the day, new product, new entrepreneur, whenever somebody, you start something, you know, you want to have something that is differentiated. And what is it and, and how, how do you actually market? What is it that truly, truly sets your tequila apart from everybody else? Thank you. Well, so we know there are, are many, many tequila brands out there um, and, and it's, you know, a crowded, crowded space. So I think one thing we talked about earlier is that I kind of came in as an outsider. I think there is some benefit of coming into any industry as an outsider. And that's because I, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know. And so I think that gives you the ability to innovate and think of things kind of differently. Um, so it even started from like our battle design. So you saw, our, our battle. And I wanted to have a very like unique shape and stand out. I wanted to be sleek and sophisticated while being easy to hold and pour. So it, it even started from that. Um, and because I didn't know how complicated it would be to, you know, paint a battle with a gradient from white to clear to white again. But I just went in with an idea and a design in my own head. Um, so I think even starting from just battle design, how I wanted to look different, how I wanted something that I could probably display in my back bar, um, so I think you have the custom battle that is housed in and then really the liquid inside is, you know, it's all about the quality. So we have a meticulous process, everything from how we, which agave we select to how it's cut, how it's cooked, the entire process. Um, I'd say our Blanco tequila, the way we made a very sippable, easy to drink, we say dangerously easy to drink Blanco tequila mm-hmm. that has very little bite on the back end, um, is by resting it like I had mentioned before in these in um, American Oak barrels for a short period of time. And then we have a very long process. Our Blanco takes about 70 days to produce. Um, And a typical Blanco, I mean, it can probably be bottled in like, you know, a week. Um, But we take a, a really long time and how we produce it. Like even just our stabilization process is a minimum of 30 days. And then we rest it in barrels for a short time. So we created these like sweet notes of vanilla and caramel and hints of citrus and mint um, and a very sippable Blanco tequila, but without using additives. So that's very unusual. Um, So everything from our aroma to the taste profile to the bottle design Mm -hmm. stands out. And then our Reposado is a brand new release and it is the first and only um, right now Reposado that's been aged in rosé wine barrels. Wow! So for me, that was really a a passion project as well. Um, I happen to like rosé wine, but I don't like the after effects of rosé wine. Mm -hmm. So I just thought, is there any way I can somehow incorporate rosé wine with tequila? Um, I didn't realize that it would be so difficult to find rosé wine barrels because it's a young wine. So traditionally not barrel aged. Uh, so I really scoured, scoured the earth to find them. And finally 
Um, we located them in the South of France and it's really exciting to kind of create this very unique expression of a Reposado. So it's aged in rosé wine barrels and finished in Pinot Noir barrels. And I don't know if you can see it behind me there, but it has this like rose gold hue to it. Um, and we were able to create that based on the aging and without using any coloring. So often if you see a tequila that has like a pink color or something like that, because they added coloring, but it's, it's just from our process. So that's a really kind of rich and complex taste profile. And I think it's a great introduction to an aged expression, especially for a female consumer who maybe generally gravitates towards a clear um, spirit. But I think just, you know, it's very recognizable rosé wine barrels that I think it'd be, I think it's a a good entry point into kind of like a little more sophisticated uh, tequila expression. Well, I have to tell you, I, I can't wait to try it. So, so we'll definitely, and, and the idea of the Reposado being in the rosé bottles, that's, um, or the, the barrels, my, my wife is a rosé drinker. So I, I just think, you know, she's the tequila person in our family. So, um, can't wait to, to get some of this in and try. We're, we're kind of at the end of our time, but I want people to make sure they know how to find you. So obviously there's some online sources. There's some in-store sources. The, the tequila again is Inspiro tequila, um, so, you know, would you just mind spelling out the website? And if somebody wants to get a hold of you, how would they find you? Sure. So www.inspirotequila.com, I-N-S-P-I-R-O, tequila.com. And then you can find me uh, personally. I'm, I'm really good on LinkedIn. Um, so please connect with me on LinkedIn, Mara Smith. Um, you can also find me on Instagram. My my attempt at uh, social media is be inspired by Mara, and then you can find Inspiro Tequila on TikTok, Pinterest, where we do a lot of great recipes, and um, on Instagram on at Inspiro Tequila. Excellent, excellent. Well, Mara, thanks again for uh, for being with me today. It's a great entrepreneurial story, and you know, hopefully, any any of the listeners know that anybody can start a business. Right. And if you have something that you've got a passion for, a vision for, it doesn't even have to take a lot, but you can do this. So um, hopefully your story has been inspiring to many others. It's been a fun conversation for me. So I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Sure thing. Okay, everyone. Well, um, we've got more great guests coming up. So stay tuned and visit us again. And um, I'll see you at our next show. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.